0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. As a podcast dedicated primarily to speculative fiction, we rarely find ourselves taking a deep dive into history. But the growth in popularity of both myths and retellings is bringing with it a new focus on historical periods and the culture that defines them. While some books offer mere outlines, nods to authenticity, others are meticulously researched, immersing readers in eras that can seem just as strange to a contemporary audience as a fantasy realm. When the era you're recreating is early 7th century Britain, facts are thin on the ground, especially the kind of facts essential to evoking an authentic atmosphere. In this episode, we are joined by Nicola Griffith, the award-winning author of Hilde, and more recently, Meanwood, a series of novels that explore the life of St. Hilda of Whitby, among many other things, an important figure in the early Christian church. Nicola, we are so happy to have you here on the show. Could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work?
2: Sure. I'm happy to be here. Hi, my name is Nicola Griffith. I write novels mostly. Uh, My most recent book is Meanwood and that's set in 7th century Britain. It's the second in a series of books about Hild of Whitby. The first one was called Hild, funnily enough. Um, And in between those two books I wrote two other books, one of which was contemporary fiction, basically about a woman who's diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and is very pissed off about that. And then uh, a short novel called Spear, which is an Arthurian retelling. It's historically um, realistic to the 6th century, but of course it has magic and swords and demigods, so you couldn't really call it historical fiction. Before that, I wrote three novels about a woman called Aud Torvingen who's six feet tall and kills people and has a really good time doing it and before that I wrote two science fiction novels one set on another planet in the far future and one very near future set in the north of England
1: okay uh Clearly, I need to check out your back catalogue because it does sound pretty epic. Um, I feel like the, the first question, and probably a question you've been asked many, many times now, is what originally drew you to the story of Hild?
2: That's a complicated question. Because yeah, I
1: suspected I, it might be. <laughs> everyone asks
2: that. Everyone assumes I wanted to write about Hild, and I really didn't. Um, in fact, I fought against the need to write this story for a really long time. But what prompted these books to start with is, um, well, pretty much since the day I was born. So I grew up in the north of England, and wherever you are, the natural landscape is full of history. You see ruins of castles. You look at the, the horizon and you see a hill, and it may not actually be a hill. It may be a barrow. The roads you're walking on are Roman roads buried under the tarmac. History is all around you. And it's a really different kind of connection to history than than somewhere like this country. So I I live in the U.S. right now. And um, I had been living here about six months and I was driving with Kelly, my sweetie. She's now my wife. And we saw a sign for the Marietta Historical Railroad and my jaw just dropped. I thought, well, a railroad can't be historical. I mean, to me, that's railways are, the, are just like yesterday, that it's not actual history to me in a particular way. So I was always steeped in this notion that the landscape was all about the long ago history and and nature were were intimately bound together. And so I always wanted to write about the past. I always wanted to go back to a time when there weren't contrails in the sky and, and the stink of exhaust everywhere and the birds were different birds and there were wolves and bears and lynxes and other things like that. But I never actually... Planned to until one day I went to Whitby Abbey. I was um, in my early twenties. I've been having a really hard time. I was living in a city called Hull, and anyone who's familiar with England knows that in the um, in the eighties, Hull was an extraordinarily miserable place. It was twenty five percent unemployment. The drains were literally failing, so the city stank. It was just it was a hard place. And um, one day I just needed to get away. So I just hiked up the coast and went to Whitby. I'd never been before and I couldn't believe I had never been there before. Because I'd been to all the other, I'd been to Revo and Bolton Abbey and Kirkstall. I'd been to all the places. I'd never been to Whitby. And I thought I knew what to expect. I mean, I'd read Dracula, right? So I knew about all the steps. I'd read Possession. I knew roughly what Whitby would be like but um when i actually got to the abbey and stepped across that threshold there's there's um it's it's on the edge of a cliff and it's just this lovely grass and this uh i think ruins of the 14th century priory there and i stepped across that threshold and it was as though hmm I've I've told this story before, but it really, it really exemplifies what it was like for me. I don't know if anyone here has um, fallen in love at first sight, but I have. (laughs) Yeah, it was like that. It was like one minute you're sticking your head in a perfectly ordinary wardrobe, and the next minute you're in Narnia. The world is just—it changed. And, and I it, my understanding of history changed. Everything changed all in one moment. It, I looked around and I looked at the stones tumbled on the grass and thought those stones were carved by real people, not people who knew they were in history, but people who were just trying to get a job done and maybe wishing that they would have uh, a, a good dinner when they got home. They were just ordinary people. And I just suddenly everything felt incredibly real, very concrete, not abstract at all. History was no longer a story. It was the world. And um, and so I became fascinated with this place. I thought, where did this place come from? It, it's astonishing. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this notion that there are some places where The skin of the earth is very thin that the the overworld is very close by um and if there are such places as that and I'm not convinced actually because I'm I'm a very science-based person I'm not big on woo stuff but if it's true Whitby is that place because it really felt close to something else um, and so I became fascinated and I wanted to know why that place there, how did it come to be there? So I went off to the little tourist booth, you know, and I got my pamphlet and it, it said it was founded by someone called St. Hilda. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go read a book about St. Hilda, who was this person. Uh, but there were no books about St. Hilda. I mean, not a single Book. There were no scholarly texts. There weren't um, graphic novels. There weren't racy bodice rippers. There was nothing. And that's when I embarked on this process of trying to find out who this person was. But I still didn't want to actually write about her because I still had this notion that, that we're fed about how history worked, especially with medieval or particularly early medieval times, the so-called Dark Ages, where, I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking that in the, quote, Dark Ages, unquote, women were just chattels. They were basically rape toys for boys, or they were baby machines. They they weren't real people in a particular way. They had no power. They were object rather than subject. And I thought, I do not want to write a book about a woman in that situation. I just don't want to. But I kept coming back to this notion of, okay, if if history really was like that, then how come this woman was able to, to make this place? How come we still know who she is. We don't know much about her 1,400 years later, um, but we've got that five pages in bead, most of which is miracles, so, you know, not useful for me. Um, I just couldn't figure out. There was this, this burning paradox I needed to solve. How come if history was this way, this woman was powerful and well-known enough to make this thing happen. And um, that's what made me write this book. I wrote Hild and then Meanwood to find out how it worked, how she could do it.
0: So in your research then, were women treated that way? You know, the way that we tend to think of them being treated in that sort of period. Did you find that that was the case, or, or is there actually a bit more to it than that? <laughs>
2: uh, yes, no, maybe, and absolutely not.
0: <laughs> so
2: what we have in terms of evidence for how women were treated is very little. We've got, I'm talking now specifically about the 7th century, early 7th century north of England, well, North Britain, basically, Britain. Um, so we have the documents we have are all written by religious folks, men, mostly. Um, I think there are a few things that may have been written by women, but we can't tell for sure. And of course they have their particular agendas and their notion of good women is wives of kings, mothers of other kings, or holy virgins. So if you believe people like Bede That's all women were and did. No other women existed apart from royal women. And then we have material evidence. So we have archaeology. We look at grave goods. We look at what people wore. Uh, We can tell what their diets were like and so on. But if you look at grave goods, all grave goods tell you is that how women were buried we, we doesn't tell us anything about how they lived. So basically, we don't know. We have no idea. But I personally believe that women, well, people are people. I think the the psychology and intellectual architecture of human beings hasn't really changed much. I would say in about two hundred thousand years. So if there are strong, willful, self-determined, autonomous women now, then there would have been those women then. So I just assumed that women would always find a way. It's like that quote from Jurassic Park, right? Life will find a way. (laughs) Women will always find a way. People will always find a way to be themselves to the best of their ability. So, yeah, I, I think women, some women had a tough time in the Dark Ages. Um, I think some women had a pretty good life in the Dark Ages. And I think, honestly, most of them, like most people, lived a relatively precarious life because everything depended on the weather and agriculture. No matter how rich you were, if there was a cataclysm and crops failed for two years in a row, everybody was going to be living close to the edge, close to the bone.
1: Within your book, Hild, um, the main character has various shifting roles within society that have a, a lot to do with her magical gifts. So as a seer, she is helpful to a king, but she could just as easily become a scapegoat. So what did you hope to explore about the power dynamics of the medieval court and the position of women within it in this series of novels?
2: I don't think I was actually interested in exploring the power of the court at all. I was interested in in looking at how people interacted in that world. I just I became very, very interested in um, again to to me, women are just simply people, and I wanted every every person and every character in the book to feel real and complex. Um, So in terms of hierarchy and power and politics, I wanted all those relationships to be complicated and interesting. Um, I think I was more interested in simply seeing people like me, so crips, queers, women, outsiders of all kinds, treated as real people in the past because we're often just not really seen as real people. The real people are always straight white boys, uh, manly men with the square jaws and, uh, and a little crown tucked in their back pocket or people who end up being the chosen one in some way. I just wanted people. I, just, I wanted to play in this world that I had written. I, I wanted to time travel. And just see what it might be like.
1: Can I ask you about the more, I hesitate to use the word fantastical elements, because obviously your books are richly historical and. Very authentic, and I have spent an entire probably this entire afternoon on your research blog because it's amazing. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, and I'm just bowled away by the amount of work and and time and and digging that you've done. You know, because we have very few facts about this period, and especially facts that really help to you know lend a novel a feel of authenticity. Um, so when we talk about magical gifts and seeing, and I mean how important was it to you to have those elements in the book but also to maintain that um, very authentic feel that we associate with straight historical fiction?
2: They were both vital to me. Um, It was very, very, very important. The overriding importance to me was to never contravene what was known to be known historically. Obviously, there's not a lot known, so I had a lot of leeway, but I I really wanted to work within the bounds of what was kind of accepted wisdom of the time because I wanted to run Hilda's this giant controlled experiment because I really wanted to find out if my personal belief that people are people and will always find a way, and the way to do that was to basically build the 7th century, and then put Hild in it as a child and watch as she grew. So in that sense, I needed the historical realism. But also, I think that life is kind of magical. I think love is magical. I think nature is magical. And one of the things I've always loved, as I said right at the beginning, about history is this notion that it's deeply bound with landscape and nature. And so I I really wanted that sense of wild magic running through the earth. I didn't want any actual dragons or demons or fairies or demigods, but I wanted that sense of amazingness and, and potential miraculousness to the world all the time. Just the way that I think children approach the world i think that was part of why hilde began as a three year old i mean i hadn't expected that to happen when i sat down to write i had no idea i was going to begin with hilde as a three year old it just came out of the blue and of course as i went along i thought oh i'm doing i know why i'm doing this it's because a then i can grow her i can and then b the reader can discover the world as Hild does." so i didn't have to keep Bringing everything to a halt and explaining what's going on, because Hilda's discovering what's going on. But also, Hilda, as this young person, is discovering the world. And I imagine, obviously, I don't really remember being three, but I imagine that as a three year old, everything is kind of marvelous. Everything is for the first time. So it is magical. And so That's what I was trying to do with Hilda's make realism and magic all part of the same thing.
0: Okay, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier, where, you know, how these stories of women in history tend to be the mothers of great men, or the wives of great men, or something like that. When writing the story... And given that we have very little in terms of the historical pieces about women like this in that period, how did you make it feel real in that sense and to make that actually really feel like, yes, this is exactly how it could have happened? Because as you say, like she was extraordinary. She was different from everyone else we sort of get much history about at that time because she was a woman able to accomplish these things. So in terms of when you set out to create this character, were there anything in particular that you really tried or wanted to get across about her that made her unique or that made her able to stand out in, in that time? Um, So Hild, she needed, I needed
2: to give her certain attributes to make her sort of believable. So one She is from a powerful family. Two, she's very, very smart. And three, she is astonishingly big and strong. So those were actual attributes I had to give her because it really helps. But the way to make it, the way I try to make things feel realistic, is by grounding everything in sensory detail. What I try to do as a writer with, with everything I write, but very particularly with Hild, because Hild, the character, and Hild, the story, really does go against the grain of so much that we think we know about the past that I had to make it absolutely believable. So um, I don't know how conversant you are with um Cognitive poetics or or neuroscience, um, but basically, what as a writer I do is I trigger mirror neurons in the reader. I give you the kind of sensory descriptions that that you can recreate inside your own head. You can actually, if I say she ran the leather glove scented with lavender under her nose, you will actually smell that. You will feel the leather on your face. There are some words that work that way and some words that don't. The more specific and particular a word or um, a verb particularly is, the more it goes in and the more you can, your body kind of recreates the feeling. So basically what I do is I put... Hild inside the reader's head and the reader inside Hild's head so that they're both living together. You are seeing things through Hild's eyes. You are discovering things about the world through Hild. So if Hild is afraid, you are afraid. If Hild is happy or irritated. You're happy or irritated. You can smell what she smells. You can feel the wind on your face. So you basically just believe her, because you're living it right there. So that's what I was doing, just putting the reader right there. So they have no choice but to believe it, basically. It's mind control.
0: I mean, that's impressive, but it also sounds a little bit sinister. which I quite like. <laughs>
2: Oh, yes. With great power comes great responsibility. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, and, and I do have to be careful. It's why I will never, ever write a depiction of rape in one of my books because here, here. The, reader, the reader would feel it. Uh, it's why I won't ever show cruelty to animals. In that way, because the reader will feel it. There are some things you just can't do with that tool, or you shouldn't. Let me put it that way.
1: If you allow me to geek out for a moment here, I found a, a blog of yours a couple of years ago when I was, you know, developing my own um, historical fantasies and these periods. And it, it what you said really struck me, um, and it's, it's, I feel like it's helped me very much in my own work. I'm, I'm a bit like you. I bugbears for me are anachronistic words, uh, language that belongs to later periods, popping up mm-hmm. in historical times where they just shouldn't be there. And it, it really gets me as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I just love this blog post you did about, because uh, you have, uh, Hild speaks four languages. Um, many of the characters, it was, a, it was a cultural melting pot this time. Lots of languages flying all over the place, uh, coming from very different cultural backdrops. Um, and I love that you uh, you paid such attention to, to detail, to whoever was Speaking at the time you altered your use of you know the english language which is what we have to work with here to to reflect um you know a character's character that was mm-hmm. not put very well but you know what i mean okay. um, anyway i was so i was so impressed by this that i got very excited when i knew you were going to come on the show so i could talk to you about it um because yeah i i just feel like um you know, how did you how did you go about that? Were there any tricks you used? Um, is it simply that you just have a, a very deep uh, linguistic knowledge of, you know, a, of etymology, um, you know, that you actually just talking about those sort of sensory tricks? Um, but yeah, I just wanted to talk to you about linguistics because I'm a bit of a nerd about it.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that what I wrote was really helpful. Uh, hmm. I, my, my, uh, my languages actually are pitiful. I, I tried, when I was first researching, I tried to read things in the original. I would try to read Old English. Um, and I got to the point where I could pick some stuff out, but I didn't really have a deep grounding. In the end, I found that uh, bilingual um, page, next-to-page editions were the best. But So what I did is I read a lot of Old English poetry, I read a lot of, or tried to read a lot of Old Welsh poetry, because Old Welsh is the closest I could get to Britonic, really, which is, you know, the precursor language to Welsh and Cumbric and so on. And um, just the rhythm of the sentences really seeped into me. And then I would think about So there's there's a point in Hild where I, I talk about how British, which is what I call Britonic in the book, is the language of wild and wary things. In other words, it's the language that those who are not in power use. It's the language of, if you think about, Old English as the language of the predator and British is the language of the prey. Then that is one way to look at it. And the, the predator doesn't have to be quiet, doesn't have to be circumspect, doesn't have to be roundabout, doesn't have to use the periphrastic phrasing. They can just go stonk, 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 stab. That's what the predator does. The prey has to sneak from one shadow to the next and try not make a noise. They have to be elusive rather than straightforward. So for me, it was about the psychology of the character, the psychology of their position in society, and then how, what language they would have grown up with and so how their thoughts might naturally tend and then of course you throw the personalities into it um and and you can get their particular word choices too people the the kind of metaphors they would use because they like to hunt things or they like to weave things or they like to sing or whatever they will choose that sort of language uh i hope i'm making sense
1: uh you totally are Yes, completely. Um, Yeah, I'm just sitting here lapping it all up. So, you know, I I just love it. I love, um, I don't want to make a a generalisation, but I feel like some authors, you can just get lazy with constructing prose. And it's just such a joy to find someone who takes not just skill, but also like genuine, it seems genuine delight in Researching etymology and figuring out how these things impact characters and how they impact people, and because you know languages, it's so essential to to our how we express ourselves and our relationship with with the natural world. It's
2: true. And some some of the the language stuff that I did was purely unconscious, and then I realised what I was doing, and then I did it consciously. And then some of it, so some of it was really easy. It just filled unfurled on the page it was it was wonderful and some of it i would spend i mean i remember one day spending an hour wrestling with whether or not to use the word flush or blush uh, uh to describe a yesith you know a big big butch warrior guy turning red because um flush is a later etymologically speaking it's not um as old but blush has so many connotations of maidenly simpering blushes so i in the end sort of held my nose and used the word flush (laughs) so there are some times where um i think if you look at it on paper you should use the one word but then for many, many, many better reasons, you end up using the other one.
1: I I literally read that bit on your blog today and (laughs) (laughs) made the right choice. Yes.
2: Yes. I think so too.
1: Well, I'm going to
0: probably give another two pronged question. Let's hope I can be more articulate this time. (laughs) But I wanted to ask you about the LGBTQ plus kind of representation, because as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, you, want to see people who are traditionally on the margins represented. And, you know, we here think that that's fantastic. We want to see more of it. And honestly, we think that, it, you know, it's it's fairly uncommon with historical novels even now. Um, but, you know, given you have done so much research, I know we we touched on already that there was quite a lot lacking in terms of women's relationships and, and especially, you know, the, the kinds of things that would be behind closed doors. But I just wondered about that research. And if you found anything to indicate some of those relationships in that time period, and then if not like what you wanted to, or why even you wanted to bring that in to the story.
2: Oh, I'm going to answer that last bit first because <laughs> to me that's like well duh <laughs> you know I'm I'm a right old dyke and I just can't imagine a world without queer women in it um so that's why I did that because it's just fun um fair enough <laughs> as, for, yeah. as for what there is out there Yeah, there's just not very much. Um, You know, you won't catch Bede talking about how Queen, what's her name, had a really awesome, rollicking sex with Lady, what's her name. He's just not going to go there. He will make sly illusions, possibly, when he's talking about. Lastingham, the Abbey, and how the ladies there were, took too much care of their clothes and hair ribbons and stuff. So you suspect there's some stuff going on there. But um, I did, oh, I I did my best to find stuff, but there really wasn't much. But then um, I put out a call to people I knew and they talked to people they knew. And I finally came up with this, um, reference to an 8th century Irish king and and one of his judgments that he made where this woman comes in front of him and she's got a baby boy and she says, hey king, you know, help me figure out who the father of this child is. This is my child but I don't know who the father is. And At which point I'm scratching my head thinking, okay. (laughs) And the king says, hmm, so you haven't had sex with a man for many years she said no never he says well hmm so you've had sex with a woman though recently she says well yeah he says oh well there you go that's what happened in your playful mating with another woman um the semen fell out of her and into you and and whoever had sex with her is the father of your child and i was okay oh yeah yeah it's uh it's in um ooh it's it's on my blog but i think it's uh, the tale of neil Frosick or something like that but i was really struck by this notion of of the playful mating with another woman there was no judgment there it was more like just a bit of a happy romp and you know grins all around there was there was no censure to it but of course it makes sense when when you think about what was happening in the early 7th century, which is when Hild was set. Hild runs from uh, 617 to 632. Um, so at that point, Christianity in um, the – I'm going to call them English. I just can't bear using the word Anglo-Saxon anymore. It's got so many – uh, kind of racist connotations these days. So let's call them English. In the English community, there was no Christianity, really. Christianity was just beginning. So everything was uh, not connected with the kind of patristic misogyny we associate with Christianity. There were no, there was no, um Old Testament stuff. There was no Roman and Greek stuff. It was very much this Germanic notion of close to the earth. Sex would have been much more natural kind of thing. And then when you add the fact that why, why would anyone care about women having sex with women? The the men wouldn't care because... To them, it would be nothing. The only time people would get bent out of shape is if lines of heredity got confused. And obviously, women having sex with women, um, that's not going to be a problem.
0: Unless the semen falls out of the other woman. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Okay.
2: <laughs> anyway, does that answer stuff? I, I can't remember if I had more to say, but...
0: <laughs> no, it, it absolutely does. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, it's really nice to see. And also like Lucy's books, um, as well feature some LGBTQ characters in kind of a similar time period. And it's just,
2: yeah, I mean, we're, we're everywhere. We always have been, I, I think the basic percentages of people who have same sex attractions is about the same throughout history. So, you know, there'd be as many queer people then as there are now, I think, as long as there wasn't too much, um, Judgement for it, or uh, too much oppression based on it, but I just I don't see why there would have been.
1: Oh, I completely agree. We don't change. Um, we just don't as people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're yeah. always, we always will be here. It's just you know you have to ask yourself why why these people have sort of disappeared from history, and it's just like well look at look at who wrote history, <laughs> look at the sources Perfect. that have reached us, who wrote those. Mm-hmm. Um, I love um, talking. Queer people in history is just one of my things, so uh, it's really, really nice to to hear that.
2: But similarly, with with uh, people of color and crips and old people and poor people, you know, we've always been there.
1: Nicola, it's just been amazing talking to you. Yeah, I think it'll probably be one of my favourite episodes, just because you've allowed me to, to sit and geek about language and um the historical periods that deeply fascinate me and. and and the books I'm writing. So thank you so much uh, for coming along and talking to us this evening. It's been
2: my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Breaking the Glass Slipper
0: is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.